There we go. I love the energy at the 9 a.m. service, you guys. Way to bring it. That's incredible. Love it. Hey, when Amber and I first got married, we were young and we were poor, okay? Now, uh, I know that's not really that remarkable because most people are young and poor when they first get married, right? You get married, you just spend a ton of money on a ring, and uh, you just graduated, you got a ton of school debt, and so when you, you know, strike it out on your own, you go to find your first place, you're looking for the cheapest home you can possibly find on the market. You know what I mean? You're taking all the hand-me-down furniture, like your aunt's old floral couch that's got stains from decades ago. You're like, I don't even care, we just need a place to sit. And that's how it was for us, okay? When we first got married, actually, our, our first place that we ever lived was a mobile home, all right? <laughs> Yeah, because in Texas, it's a rule. Everybody has to live in a trailer park at some point in their life. And so we said, all right, let's go ahead and get our time in the trailer park out of the way. And so we lived in that trailer park for less than a year. And Amber and I looked at each other one day and we're like, we got to get a house without wheels. Like homes are not supposed to have wheels. You're not supposed to tow them around. And so we said, it is time to move out of here. So we upgraded, you guys. We upgraded to a duplex, all right? (laughs) Now, there are some nice duplexes in Calgary. I drive around and I see some of these and I'm like, well, this is every bit as nice as a full standalone home. The duplex that we moved into was nothing like that. It was tiny, it was old, and it was in bad shape. Not only that, we only lived in that duplex for about two years because after two years, our next door neighbors were murdered in a drug deal gone bad. No lie. So I started calling it the murderplex. I thought this was really funny. And Amber said, we need to move. And so we moved again. This time we got into a house. It was really nice, but we didn't own the house. We had to rent the house. And it took us several more years. We finally were able to save up enough for a down payment. We bought and built our own home in Florida. It was like a huge moment for us. Now, you're sitting here thinking, Dan, I did not come to church to hear your housing history. What in the world are you even talking about, bro? And I get it. I understand where you're coming from. The reason that I mention all of this is because for most of us, throughout life, we tend to upgrade our dwelling places. We start out small and cheap, and over time, we get a little bit better, a little bit nicer. And when we choose a new place to live, we almost always choose the new place based on its amenities, how nice it is, what it offers. Now, here's the deal. In our final message of this present series, what I'm going to show you from a broad overview of the scripture is that throughout history, God has actually moved his dwelling place. But whereas we move based on amenities, God always makes his next move based on proximity. And most specifically, proximity to his children. God always moves closer to his children. Some of you guys are grandparents, and you have followed your kids and grandkids all across the country. You're like, I don't care where you guys go. I'm going to follow you. God really is no different. He always moves in closer and closer proximity to his children. In real estate, you've heard the truism, location, location, location. God is all about location because he is constantly moving towards his children. Now, here's what's amazing, okay? Because God is continuously and progressively moving closer to his children, that means that you and I in 2021 have an access to God's presence that most people throughout history have never had. Now, we're going to dig into that at the end of the message. 
You have an access to God that 98% of every human who has ever lived did not have access to. And it's all because God keeps moving closer and closer to his children. All right, so let me tell you what I mean here. Let me show you uh, kind of the, the progression that God has made. And again, I want to remind you of something that we said the first week in this present series. God is omnipresent. He is literally present everywhere. There is nowhere where God is not. However, God has chosen to manifest his presence in special ways at specific places in time throughout history. And this is how, this is what we're going to see, okay? So we spent a lot of time over the last few weeks talking through the early parts of the book of Exodus. We talked about how God had freed the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. They wandered through the desert and eventually God manifests his presence in a particular place. That first location where God's presence was, was at the top of a Mountain, thank you. Dave is paying attention. Front row represent. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate that. Yeah, God manifested his presence at the top of Mount Sinai. Do you remember that? We read in Exodus chapter number 19, verses 17 through 18, Moses led all the people out from the camp to meet with God. They stood at the foot of the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the form of fire. The, the scripture says the smoke billowed into the sky and the whole mountain shook violently. So God manifests himself. The first place that God chooses to dwell in this Exodus story is at the top of a mountain. And you'll remember how when the people saw how great and awesome God was, they freaked out. They got scared and they said, no, 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 no. I'm not going into his presence. Moses, why don't you and your boy Joshua go up the mountain, have a conversation with God, come back and tell us what he said. So catch this now. In the beginning, at the, the start of this story, God's proximity is far removed from his people. His proximity in the beginning is far removed. He's on a mountain. He's outside of the camp. You got to work to get up to him. In fact, most people go nowhere near him. He's out there somewhere in the distance. But eventually, it's time for the Israelites to move on. Remember, because God had promised, I'm going to take you out of Egypt, and I'm going to bring you into the promised land. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, as he takes them uh, from Egypt, they cross through Sinai, and then eventually he says, okay, it's time for us to go. We're going to move into the promised land. So now the question becomes, where is God going to dwell? Because he's been dwelling at the top of this mountain all this time, but the Israelites are about to be hundreds of miles away from this mountain. So where is God going to dwell? God and Moses come up with a plan. Now, we haven't read this part of the story yet, and I don't have time to really dig into it, but here's what God and Moses decide. They're going to come up with a portable temple a portable temple. It's going to be a building that God is going to dwell in, but it's a really fancy tent called a tabernacle. Tabernacle, all right? A tabernacle is a tent that can be moved around. And so the whole point here is that God is going to dwell now within this tabernacle. And what's interesting is the tabernacle is not going to be out in the wilderness somewhere far away. They're going to construct and erect this tabernacle right in the middle of the Israelites' encampment. So you see here, God's proximity used to be far away out there, but he has taken a step closer in towards his children. Now he is literally dwelling among them. The scripture tells us here in uh, Exodus chapter number 40, verse 34, that uh, after Moses finally got done building the tabernacle, you guys, there are a lot of chapters in the Bible that describe Moses building the tabernacle, and it is as 
interesting and exciting as you would expect it to be. So anyway, in Exodus 40, he finally gets done building the tabernacle, and the scripture says, then the cloud of God's presence, or another way to translate, the smoke that we had seen earlier, it covered the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So again, God's presence started distant out there on a mountain somewhere, and he has now taken a step, one step closer to his children. He is dwelling among them. And then we'll skip like, I don't know, half the Old Testament. And eventually the Israelites are like, you know, it's probably not good that God still lives in a mobile home. He did. He lived in a mobile home. All right. That joke, I thought it was better than what it actually was. I was expecting a bigger laugh there. I'm not going to lie, but whatever. Sometimes it doesn't work. I'm still going to do that joke in the second service. I don't even care. All right. All right. All right. So he had been in this portable tabernacle and the Israelites are like, God should have like his own place like a real building, you know? And so uh, we skip ahead in the book of Second Chronicles. There's a king named Solomon. Solomon builds this most incredible temple for God. And we read in Second Chronicles chapter number seven, verse one, when Solomon, they're at the dedication of the temple. When Solomon finished praying, fire, that's, that, that's the same element we've seen in every one of these circumstances so far. Fire flashed down from heaven and burnt up the offerings and sacrifices. And again, the glorious presence of the Lord filled, manifested in the temple. So God was out there. Now he's taken a step closer, okay? And this is how it was. God lived in a building for hundreds and hundreds of years. If anybody wanted to encounter God, the place they went to do it was at the temple, all right? But we get to the New Testament and God says, you know what? This is not close enough. I don't wanna just live on the same block as everybody else. I want to be even closer to them. And he takes this step closer in the person of Jesus himself. So if we go to the gospel of John, John chapter number one, John was one of Jesus' original disciples. He was like there. He walked with Jesus for three years during his ministry. John saw and heard with his own eyes and ears everything that Jesus did during his time here on earth. And after Jesus dies and ascends to heaven, John's like, I better write all this down so I don't forget it and future people can know all the things that Jesus said and did. So he writes down the gospel, the good news, according to John. So it's not the gospel of John, it's the gospel according to the apostle John. So in John chapter number one, he is gonna write an introduction to who Jesus is. He's basically saying, look, I'm gonna tell you all the things he said and did, but first you need to know who we ultimately realized Jesus was. So that as you read all of these things, you're not confused. So in John chapter number one, in starting in verse number 14, John the apostle writes this. So the word, and the word is a reference to Jesus, okay? We, we don't have time to cover like, why was he called the word? Was he a book? No, he was a person, okay? But there's a reason that they use this particular phrase. It has theological and philosophical meaning. But anyway, it's referring to Jesus. So the scripture says, Jesus became human and he made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one. Again, that's a reference to Jesus. The unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. All right, we've got to slow down here just a sec because there is so much in these three or four verses that I don't want you to miss, okay? Did you catch in verse number 17 the reference to Moses there? 
the reference to Moses. Now, I just told you that John is introducing Jesus in this passage. So why is he talking about Moses? Like, why bring up another name that people may or may not be familiar with? All right. The reason that he mentions Moses here is because he wants you to tie everything that's about to happen with Jesus to the story that began in the book of Exodus. Okay. He wants you to say, all right, all the things that I'm about to read about Jesus, they had their start way back in the, the book of Exodus, this story that we've been telling for the last few weeks. Now, don't misunderstand this. John is not linking Jesus and Moses. John is linking Jesus and the presence of God. Okay? He's not saying Jesus is Moses come again. He's saying Jesus is God's presence in the same way that Moses experienced God's presence way up at the Mount Sinai and then also in the tabernacle. If you think that that's not enough evidence, oh, there's so much in here. Notice there in, in verse number 14, it says, so Jesus became human and made his home among us. The way this is written in the Greek, it literally says the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Where we heard that word tabernacle before? Back in the book of Exodus. See, it's another tie there. We read here, John says, no one has ever seen God. And if you're not familiar with Exodus 33, so this is like just before they're getting ready to leave. We haven't read this story on Sunday morning yet, but just before the Israelites are getting ready to leave and go to the promised land, Moses and God are kind of having a final conversation. And Moses says to God, God, show me you in all of your glory. Manifest your presence to me in a way that doesn't hold anything back. And God says, Moses, I cannot do that. In fact, no man can see my glory and live. And so God actually says to Moses, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you in a rock. I'm going to cover you with my hand. I'm going to pass by the rock and you can see the place where I was, not the place that I am. It's a really fascinating story. But then we get to John 1 and notice he's using the exact same language from the book of Exodus. No one has seen God. Then in Exodus 33, God passes in front of Moses. They continue to have this conversation and God reveals his name to Moses. And he says, my name is Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. That is God's personal name. We did a whole series a few years ago called God Has a Name. If you're curious, like Yahweh, what does that mean? And what are the implications? You can go back and listen to that. We spent four weeks talking about it. He says, my name is Yahweh. And he says, watch this, this is so good. He says, I am full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And then in John 1, we see those exact words used to describe Jesus. So I don't want you to misunderstand what John is communicating here, okay? Or yeah, I, I really want you to catch this. At Sinai, God was distant, you guys. He was far away. There were only two people on planet earth that had access to him. They could kind of sense that God was out there somewhere, but he wasn't with them. Then God takes a step closer. He's living in the neighborhood, but that's not even good enough. So John says God takes another step towards his children and he tabernacles. He dwells. His new home is in the person of Jesus. See, in the Old Testament, even with the tabernacle, God's presence was limited to one place. It's like, yeah, the address of the temple is da, 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 da. If you want to see God, that's where you have to go. Except if you went there and you weren't a priest, you actually weren't even allowed in the temple at all. So God was still separate in a very real way from his people. So then God says, all right, I'm going to move out of a building and I'm going to dwell in the person of Jesus. 
And so now God walks among us. He talks with us. People touch God. People eat with God. There is a new level of proximity and connection that people have with God that they had never, ever had before. That's why one of the nicknames that's given to Jesus is Emmanuel. Right? We normally use that word at Christmas time. He's Emmanuel. I don't know what song that was that I was singing, but it was a Christmas carol. It was a Christmas carol. It was, for sure. Just trust me on that one. Don't go look it up. What does Emmanuel mean? God is with us. Not God is out there. Not God is distant. Not God is unknowable. Not God is so huge and scary that nobody should ever be close to him. No, God is with us in the person of Jesus. Now you say, well, it can't get any better than that, right? Like how God, God dwells with people? He walks with them. He talks with them. He eats with them. He performs miracles. He goes to their house. Like, come on, having Jesus at your house for a dinner party, that must have been wild. So it can't get any better than this, right? Well, just before Jesus dies, he says something so strange. Something that caused great confusion and even heartache for his disciples. And if you really pay attention to these words, it should probably cause a little bit of like, what? In you as well. Okay, John chapter number 16, verse 7. Jesus says to his disciples, speaking to his followers. And he says, but in fact, it is best for you that I go away. So Jesus has been saying, hey guys, I'm going to die. They're going to put me to death. Don't freak out, though, because I'm not going to stay dead. I'm just giving you a heads up. And they're like, no, Jesus, you can't leave us. How could we ever survive without you here? It is so good to have God's presence tabernacling among us. We could never imagine you not being with us. He keeps telling them, no, guys, it's going to happen. He says here, it's actually best for you guys that I go away. Because if I don't, the comforter won't come. But if I do go away then I will send him to you. When the Holy Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So catch this now. Jesus says it's better for him to leave than for him to stay. That is a mind-boggling statement, you guys. How in the world could it be possibly better that God in a bod, Jesus, God incarnate, how could it be better that God would not be here around us with us? But again, think about it. A lot, of the, a lot of the limitations that the tabernacle in Mount Sinai had were actually still kind of present in Jesus because he had a physical body. So Jesus lived at a particular time in history, like 2,000 years ago, right? And he was only in one particular place. He was only in Jerusalem. And at any one moment, he was only at this house or in that part of the city. So his presence was still limited. This wasn't close enough even for our Father in heaven. So he decides to make one more big move. This is the final move that God's going to make until the end of time, and then he moves into the city of Jerusalem. But that's another story, all right? The scripture tells us that he's got this one final move to make. And as with the pattern we've seen the whole time, God is going to continue to move in closer proximity to his children. He is going to move closer and closer to each one of us. So we read about how uh, the, uh, so the, the Romans crucified Jesus. He's buried. The Bible says he rises from the dead on the third day in Easter. And he hangs out for a few weeks on earth in his resurrected form. And then you jump into the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter number one, we read about how Jesus ascends into heaven. 
Then we jump into Acts number two, and the disciples have been sitting around now, and they're like, so what do we do? Like, he's gone. What, what's next? We find out what's next when God makes his final move in Acts chapter number two. The disciples are gathered together, and the scripture tells us on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared, and they settled on each one of them. And every person present was filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, I want you to notice the language that's used here because it is the exact same language that has been used going all the way back to the book of Exodus. Every time God's presence manifests itself, it's always fire, storms and lightning, smoke, thunderclaps. It's like the same stuff. Sinai, tabernacle, temple, the person of Jesus, and then on in here to the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. So watch what the scripture is teaching us here. That God was not content to dwell out on a mountain somewhere far away from his creation. God wasn't even content to live in the same neighborhood as the rest of us. That God even wasn't content to take on human form and to walk with us because of the limitations that were there. Instead, God's final move was to be as close to me and you as we could possibly be. God's presence does not dwell in a building. God's presence dwells in every believer. Do you understand that? You think, oh, I'm going to come to Connect Church. We have this nice building. Isn't it so great that we have a place that we can go and meet with God? No, you're wrong. Don't speak that language at our church. God doesn't dwell in this building any more than he dwelt at the movie theater. God dwells in us. He doesn't live in a building. He lives in believers. This is one of the things that sets Christianity apart from so many other religions, really almost all other religions, is that we don't believe that God dwells in a particular building. He dwells within every one of his children who have been redeemed by his grace and his mercy. If this isn't clear enough for you, look at what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.19. He says, don't you realize that your body is the tabernacle? It is the portable dwelling place of God's Holy Spirit who lives within you. You are a portable temple. You're a tabernacle. You're like, my body ain't a temple, bro. <laughs> Not a temple here. Uh, okay, it's a tabernacle. It's, it's a little lower class, all right? Listen. Oh, gosh, you guys, this is so good. I got to tell you, it's rare. I'm, I'm just going to be really transparent here. It is rare for my mind to be blown when I'm writing content, okay? Uh, it happens. It happens, you know, a lot. Don't get me wrong. But, like, there are times where I, the Spirit hits me with something, and I'm like, I can't even take all this in. This is too good to be true. This is, What? And this is what I experienced this week. Because the bottom line, the principle that we see throughout Scripture is that God has been moving closer and closer to humanity throughout history. God has been moving closer and closer to people like me and you 
throughout the entirety of human history. You would expect, if I were like a betting man, I would say, yeah, based on people, okay? Based on humanity and who we are and what we do and how we live, my guess is God probably started pretty close and he's like, nah, you guys are on your own. And he left and he went back to heaven. But the story that the scripture tells is the exact opposite. He used to dwell far away. He used to be completely unapproachable. And then he said, no, I wanna move into your neighborhood. And then he said, no, 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 I want to be a part of your family. I'm going to become humanity just like you. I am going to dwell in the person of Jesus. And when that wasn't even close enough, he began to indwell his believers, his children. He couldn't possibly be any closer to you and I than he is right now. I mean, come on. Listen, if you're a Christian, this ought to move you to love God so much. Like, this is the thought that was overwhelming me this week. I'm just like, how good is God? I'm the Israelite who's like, no way. I don't want anything to do with him. He's too perfect, and I am too imperfect. He's too huge, and I'm too small, and he's too worthy, and I'm too unworthy. That's who I am. I'm the one who's saying, let's keep our distance, God, because I don't know if I could stand to be in your presence. And he's the one that's saying, no, I'm your father. I'm the one who created you. I've redeemed you. I've paid for your sins. We can be as close as you could ever imagine. That's the God I serve. Not the God that's distant, out there somewhere. Does he know me? He lives in me. Is he aware of what my life circumstances are like? He is experiencing these life circumstances every single day with me. This literally floored me this week with the goodness of our Father. We have a God who does not want to remain at a distance. He wants true intimacy with every one of us. And I mentioned earlier, because of this progression throughout history, I mentioned earlier that God essentially has been moving closer and closer and closer to the point that now he indwells believers. That means that from the, the church age, from Acts chapter number two, which is about 2,000 years ago, okay, it was a long time ago, don't get me wrong, but from that time earlier, there is not a single person in history that had access to God the way that you do. Moses, Abraham, Elijah, Isaiah, Jacob, Ruth, none of them knew God the way that you can know God. I'm at a loss for words when I think through that. It's just hard for me to comprehend. And then I think to myself, why do I waste the proximity to the Father that I've been given? Why would I ever question and doubt whether God is here with me? Why would I ever believe that God is distant and uncaring? What more could he do? The story's been here for thousands of years for anybody who wants to discover it. God has been pursuing us. If you're not a Christian, this is the kind of God that exists. And this is the kind of God that has been pursuing you your whole life. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you've been up to, doesn't matter how far you've run away, doesn't matter what your life has been like. God pursues 
his creation. God pursues the people that are called to be his children. And so you felt like God has just been hounding me. He's been on me. You're right. And he's not going to quit. He won't quit until the day you die. He will keep coming after. He will keep pursuing. He is the good shepherd that leaves the 99 to go find the one. He is willing to search for what is lost. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save what has been lost. So I'm telling you, you're not a believer. And you're saying, I don't know. I kind of feel like God's been hounding me. Yes, he has. He's been hounding all of us since the beginning of time. Now then, with that being said, I've got two more quick kind of like things that I wanna pull out from this principle. But I have to tell you, if you are not a Christian today, you have never invited Jesus into your life and asked him to forgive you of your sins. You have never welcomed God's presence into your soul. You've never become the tabernacle, so to speak. Then what I'm about to say is true of believers, but not true of you. And I don't mean to be harsh and I'm not trying to like, you know, make you feel bad or anything like that. But I have to be honest with what the scripture says here. And so when I say, oh, God pursues his children, some of you are going to hear me saying, well, we're all God's children. So everything that he says today is true of me. Not unless you've welcomed his presence into your life. Not unless you've experienced his mercy and grace and forgiveness. So for those of you that have... These are some of the other things that are true for you. And for those of you that have not, this is what is available to you from your father. The first is, we've got to remember that as Christians, what unites us is greater than what divides us. All right, now, I don't, you know, I don't want to step on any toes, okay? But like we live in a polarized world and we can fight over all kinds of things, politics and science and sports and theology and all these different things, okay? There is nothing wrong with Christians disagreeing with one another. But let me tell you, the same spirit that dwells in you dwells in them. You say, well, wait a sec though, Dan, they're pro-choice. God can't dwell there. That's not what the Bible says. Now, I'm not saying I agree with that position. I'm just saying God dwells in people who have put their faith and trust in him, who have received forgiveness. You say, well, but Dan, they're liberal or they're conservative. Surely Jesus would never vote blue. Are you kidding me? Hey, I'm just saying that is not a mark of Christianity. It is okay for us to disagree on these other things. The spirit that is in us is greater than the spirit that is in the world. And so the things that are dividing even some people in our church right now need to be put away for the unity that comes with knowing that the spirit of God dwells in you and me in the same way. Okay, final part. There's another one of those things that just kind of blew my mind. Remember back when we were talking about God in the first week or two in the book of Exodus, you know? like Sinai and the power, like the, the greatness of God. I, I honestly think that was one of the best sermons I ever preached. I really do. Was, like the greatness of God. God is great and God is good. And I'm telling you, if this principle is true, that God dwells inside of everyone who's put their faith in him, that means the same power that dwelt at Mount Sinai dwells inside of you. So what are you doing walking throughout your week feeling defeated? Why are you giving in to a spirit of fear as if you're on your own and nobody's looking out for you? Why do you believe that God has abandoned you? Everything we see in the Bible is that our good God, our great God has constantly been moving closer and closer to every single one of us. And so I need to live in his presence. 
I need to live with the implications and the results of having this great and good God indwelling my life every single day. I don't know, you guys. I just, I have been overwhelmed by this. And I hope some of you are too. Thank you, God, for pursuing us even when we were rebellious and ran away. Thank you for overcoming our sin, which forms a barrier between us. You've forgiven us by your mercy and grace because of the shed blood of Jesus. And we thank you for that free gift. And I pray for anybody that's here that has never placed their trust in you, anyone who has never welcomed your spirit into their life, that today would be the day that God, they would confess their dependency on you, that they would cry out and you would save them in the same way that you saved me. And God, I pray for every single person that's here that we would live in the presence of your spirit every single day, that we would see you show up in powerful, miraculous ways in our marriages, in our families, at our schools, in our society, and even in our church, God, because we are committed to knowing you and to living in your presence every single day. Thank you, Lord, for your blessings. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.